the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. What propels some individuals to reach extraordinary creative heights in the earliest years of life while others achieve greatness decades later? Today's guest, New York Times bestselling author and acclaimed journalist, Podia Kalb, investigated the origins of genius. In her book, Spark, How Genius Ignites from Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers, she unravels the relationship between brains, talent, passion, creativity, willpower, and imagination. She's here today to inspire those who are still searching for fulfillment. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you so much for joining us. So glad to be here. Thank you, Joan. So, Claudia, from the research that you've conducted, what is it that propels some individuals to reach extraordinary creative heights in the earliest years of life while others discover their passions decades later? Right. So in the book, I go through sort of the arc of life and discovery from prodigies to midlife um, to late bloomers. And what you have in a prodigy is somebody who shows an early interest in a particular area, let's say music or art, and is really, really um, passionate early on, but also has a parent or a mentor who cultivates that early interest. So, for example, I profile Picasso and Shirley Temple and Yo-Yo Ma, all of them had adults in their lives who really cultivated their interest. Picasso's father was an artist. Yo-Yo Ma's father was a musician. His mother was a singer. Shirley Temple's mother was interested in dance herself and um, enrolled Shirley in dance lessons as a child and nourished her career. So there's sort of a, there has to be an adult involvement because the prodigy is usually starting very young, even as young as three and four years old, and then reaches a level of adult performance by adolescence. That's, that's about the um, best definition you can get of a prodigy, somebody who really ignites early on, but is nourished and cultivated to do that and works very hard at it because that early passion is an interest in the person continues to work at it because they like doing it and thus get better at it. Whereas when somebody is more in midlife, let's say 40s or 50s or later life, 60s um, and on, there's a sense of discovery that unravels over life. And um, it happens when people discover, for example, Julia Child discovers her first meal in France at 37. And it's one of these moments of absolute joy. Um, and she realizes it's something she wants to learn more about. Um, or somebody like P. 
Peter Mark Roger, who I write about in Spark, who created Roger's Thesaurus. And I think a lot of people don't know that he was a scientist and a doctor for his entire career, and he was really good at it. He had a very, very stellar career. And then when he was in his 70s, he turned to what had been a childhood passion, which was a love of words, and he created his thesaurus in his 70s. And that's what he's known for. So it's a real long span um, in the book of individuals in different moments in life. Do you believe that genius is genetic or environmental, or is it a combination? Right. I mean, I think it has to be a combination. Genes tend to be turned on and off by environmental factors. Parents play a big role. Um, it can be, you know, an issue of where you're born and when you're born. You know, Leonardo da Vinci was born during the Renaissance. He had artistic skill, but it was a timing issue in some ways with, with his abilities. And then they were, they were um, recognized during that era. So I think, you know, it's never just genetic. It's just impossible. There are very few genes that only do one thing. And genius is way too complicated. It's multiple, multiple genes that have some effect, but then it's also how those genes interact with environment and also how hard you work at it. Because you can have a genius um, mind or talent for something, you know, in some ways shouldn't be put on a pedestal because these are human beings who, who, who have these great achievements. And I think there's some um, it's, it's kind of nice to know that in a way, and I, I feel like in the book, in Spark, I really try to humanize these individuals because although we know them as celebrities in a way, they're, they're human beings like the rest of us. Are there other things that we need in order to achieve greatness? What has to align in our life for that to happen? I think there, there are elements that have to, to align. I think um, intelligence in some format, and not necessarily a high IQ, but an intelligence for a certain field and an interest, a passion, um, maybe that develops or maybe that comes up later in life through curiosity, being very curious and, and open to new experiences. That's a really big one. This is something where you don't keep yourself in a box. I tell people, sign up for a class you don't want to take because you often find those moments or those sparks in a place that you wouldn't necessarily believe you will find them and sort of determination and, and resilience. And I think those are things that can be cultivated, that people can work on. Um, and, and, and also sometimes as we talked about this idea of, of good fortune, um, you think about Charlie Temple coming on to act during the Great Depression and being this wonderfully energetic and, and lively presence that people turn to for good cheer. Um, Bill Gates had profiled the book in Spark. He discovers computers as a teenager at a point where computers are becoming um, just the thing that, that we're all going to have in our lives, and he seizes it as, at a moment um, that, that works um, incredibly well in his life. Um, Alexander Fleming looking desperately for something that can help fix these terrible infections and finding it at the age of 47, um, discovering penicillin, in a time when desperately needed the antibiotic, and he spurs the revolution. So there's all these, you know, aspects. I think being very observant, asking a lot of questions, um, looking past borders and boundaries that you set for yourself, again, being very open to experience. You know, it's interesting. You just mentioned a few people. And, and I think, you know, most of us, we have a stereotype of, of the type of person we believe is a genius. And, and I would think someone like Bill Gates, people would say, oh, yeah, he's a genius. 
Do you think that the stereotypes that we have are accurate and, and what are we lacking in, you know, the way we believe a person would achieve that type of greatness? What are we missing? I think that sometimes, you know, genius is really held up on a pedestal. It's almost like capital letters genius, but I think genius exists in other forms. Um, the way people, you know, sort of act out their lives, let's say in Shirley Temple's life, she started as this incredibly successful child star. But then she went on and she talks about these three phases of her life, the child star phase, the motherhood and family phase, the diplomat phase. So I think we, you know, we can think of the word genius in different ways. There's the, there's the high intellectual genius, um, someone like Isaac Newton in physics and the ideas and Einstein um, in physics and those ideas. But then um, there are also the genius moments, I think, and the way of looking at genius more broadly can be helpful because it can make people feel that these, you know, genius ideas are more attainable, um, that there's an element of genius in all of us to some degree that it's not the same as being Leonardo, but it's our own form of, of genius, something we can strive for. Claudia, from the people that you've met and studied, do these people have particular traits in common? Yes. I mean, I think I could say for sure that there is a kind of a boundless curiosity, um, that there's an imagination, there's a level of resilience. A lot of them had failures or difficult childhood. Sarah Blakely talks about Failure is one of the things that really propelled her um, in her life to create and become this entrepreneur, that she went through a lot of early failures. She, she wanted to go to law school, but she didn't do well on the LSAT and other things that just propel her. So that And that's a common thread in a lot of the lives that people went through struggles. Um, but you don't have to. I think that um, being very, very curious about the world is going to open you to new experiences that then may tell you what... Um, your passion is. And so I think th those are some of the elements that, that connect people. Um, this idea of, of being imaginative and creative, embracing um, failure in the way of using it as a lesson to move forward, being observant so that you recognize the, you know, sort of eureka moment, that you pr are prepared for it, um, that you don't just brush it aside. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's other interesting elements. I think about Julia Child who discovered cooking at, you know, this great meal in France at 37 and then went on to learn to cook. Um, and then she becomes the French chef on TV at age 50, which is really her moment. She, she used her middle-aged qualities to attract her, her fan base. She was honest about who she was, and that was what worked for her. And she was goofy and um, funny. And so um, I write about that in Spark, you know, how she used her middle-agedness, attracted these people who had never seen anything like this before and found themselves sort of in her. So I think that's another interesting aspect of, of what connects these, these people is that kind of um, truth in who they are. Well, it is because all of the things that we would assume would be a negative for us, we can turn those things around and make them our greatest asset. Yes, for sure. I mean, the other, you know, person, one of the other people at the end of profile in Spark is Grandma Moses, who, you know, if you think about her, the negative things in her life, you could say, well, she was, had, a, had a, you know, a difficult early on childhood in terms of just being raised on a farm and working hard on, as a farmer, but also taught her a lot. But then she had five children who died as babies and then five who survived that she um, raised. 
it was not easy. And yet, you know, she didn't let that draw her down. It was, she had a very straightforward and um, very simple approach to understanding life and feeling as if, you know, the fact that these challenges happen is part of life. And when she was, you know, in her 70s, starts painting really because she doesn't want to waste time. She wants to keep busy. Her husband has died and she wants to, to do something with her life and to have a purpose, to not just sort of sit around and worry about things from the past, but to, to sort of put yourself into a new space and find a purpose, whatever it is. And for her, she had really good luck that somebody saw her paintings in the drugstore um, in Hoosick Falls, New York, and took them to Manhattan and a dealer began promoting her work. And when she was 80, she had her first art show. So um, I think there's a lot of um, reassurance in the stories in Spark that people show this ability to continue to grow and to succeed late in life. Well, I think that's, that's really an interesting fact, you know, for me, and I'm sure it is for so many people, because, you know, we have this notion of middle age, and from here, you know, the best is behind us. But as you're showing, we have so much time to achieve our passions and the things that we wanted to do. But if you wanted to start at a young age, what are some of the things that you believe parents can do to encourage and release greatness in our children? Well, I think parents, um, you know, should be on the lookout for whether their children have really early interests that they think are, you know, something that the the child really loves to do. So whether it's um, digging in the dirt and thinking, excuse me, about archaeology or something like that, or, or playing an instrument, they get hooked on it early. And, you know, children tend to have pretty quick attention spans. They move quickly through different games and activities. But if a child tends to sit with something, um, think about maybe nurturing it in some way. So maybe start thinking about music lessons or if the child seems to be interested in worms and nature, um, take them to a park and sign them up for courses so that those interests can be nurtured. They can't figure that out for themselves. You need to step in and, and help guide them. Um, I think another really important lesson on the flip side, though, is don't um, don't make them do one thing only. Because when I think about the people I researched in Spark, uh, especially somebody, for example, like Yo-Yo Ma talks about how important it was that he, yes, he started music very early on. But when he went to college, he wanted to, to go not to a music school, but to he went to Harvard where he really met all sorts of new people with all sorts of new interests. And I think that is a big, important thing for parents not to pigeonhole their children, because if they do one subject too much, um, it may be that they don't develop really adequate social skills. They can't navigate um, the world as easily. They don't know what else is out there. So I think it's a balancing act. The book is Spark, How Genius Ignites from Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers. If you'd like to get more information about Claudia and her work, you can visit ClaudiaKalb.com. That's K-A-L-B. Claudia, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I think that the takeaway is very simply put, there's no expiration date. I think if you read the, the lives of these people in Spark, you'll see that even the people who are prodigies continue to develop and grow. And I kind of think about, um, when you think about a, 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 ch- a chart going up, often we think of the, the midpoint in life, and then everything starts going down. And I think people should envision that that line just keeps going up, that there, you know, if, if, if you have the resources and the abilities and, and good health, then you can really um, continue to grow. So, so don't, don't give yourself a timeline that ends. Don't put your expiration stamp on your life. Um, give yourself the, the, the opportunity to continue to 
to develop and, and, um, and grow as you get older. Claudia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Linda Mitchell, a certified transition coach, reinvention expert, and speaker who empowers people that are stuck, overwhelmed, or ready for change to release the struggle, gain clarity, and evolve to their highest purpose as they move through life's challenges and transitions. Linda is here today to discuss how to nix negativity and conquer your inner critic. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Joan. So, Linda, this brand is about changing your attitude, change your life. Mm. So we know that our thoughts and our attitude play a major role in the outcome of so many of our life situations. But knowing this, we have to constantly remind ourselves to stay positive. It, It isn't always easy. So why do you believe it's so hard to control our negative inner critic? You know what? What makes it a constant battle is that our human brain is actually wired to focus on the negative. A friend of mine said it well, our brains are like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. The very first reaction to a problem is often to think about how bad it can be. That's why so many of us can identify with those relentless negative self-talk tapes in our heads. You know, the voice that keeps telling us we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not creative enough. It keeps us stuck in our old patterns and keeps us from believing we can actually do and have what we desire. Our brains are wired to be on the lookout for danger. Remember, the first humans needed to always be on alert for that saber-toothed tiger around the corner. So while we've been designed that way for a good reason, we can switch our patterns, but it does take conscious effort. If we're predisposed to focusing on the negative, can you give us a few tips on how we can beat this habit? Well, the first thing we need to do is to begin evaluating the chatter in our own heads. It's important to catch yourself when you notice those negative, self-defeating thoughts creeping in. I would seriously encourage you to be your own inner critic fact checker. Think about it. We fact check the news, social media posts, whoever tells us something we're not quite sure of. Isn't it amazing that we don't fact check our own internal monologue? We'd like to believe our own thoughts are always based in truth. But the fact is, 
so many of our negative thoughts and beliefs would clearly be proven invalid if we just dug a little deeper. I do this with my coaching clients and the process is so eye-opening and really transformative. So then step two is to inspect the genesis of those negative thoughts and beliefs. When did you first begin to believe you weren't good enough at something? Where did those messages come from that said you're not smart enough? Usually these beliefs were formed when we were young and had a negative experience. We saw or heard something that made us believe we were the problem or that we weren't living up to someone else's expectations. So we created these false negative beliefs about ourselves. And these false beliefs reinforce negative thinking patterns that generally have little to no basis in truth. They're the words of our inner critic, but often not the voice of truth. Linda, what do you believe are some of the patterns or the distorted ways of negative thinking that can trip us up? I like that you called them distorted ways of thinking because that's, in fact, exactly what they are. Let's look at the top two ways that we allowed distorted thinking to influence us and to see how to move past them. I call the first one sifting and separating. This distortion happens when we sift through, bypass, or kind of dismiss all the positive, empowering thoughts and instead focus mainly on the negative. It's like filtering out all the good stuff and holding on to the junk. So here's some examples of why this distortion creates negative self-talk. Think about the parent who sees a good report card but comments first on the least favorable grade. Or think about a performance appraisal that focused primarily on the areas needing improvement but gave little mention to all the positive contributions. We've experienced it so often that we've adopted this behavior ourselves. Someone compliments us on a job well done and offers one helpful suggestion. Suddenly, we're consumed with that one little imperfection. This feeds the mean inner critic. Instead of fixating on areas we can improve, try writing down the things you were complimented on and focus on those. We're so much better off building on our strengths rather than focusing on our imperfections. So be mindful of the areas you can improve, yes, but don't let them consume you. When you focus on your strengths, weaker areas improve as well. Find ways to build yourself up, not to tear yourself down. The second distortion is this all-or-nothing thinking, right or wrong, good or bad. This makes us feel like we're not good enough unless we're perfect and everything is just right. This kind of polarized thinking feeds the inner critic with false information. How do we combat this? Focus on progress, not perfection. Keep a running list, maybe, of your strengths to help overcome the impulse to criticize minor imperfections. You don't have to be perfect to be worthy of good things. So here's the recipe to nix the negative inner critic. First, investigate your thoughts and the chatter in your head. If you feel self-doubt rising up, be sure to examine why and look for the positives. And second, be your own inner critic fact checker. Call her out on those distortions. Because the more we focus on our strengths, the more we hardwire new neural pathways for positive thinking in our brains. What you think about comes about. What you focus on expands. So if you want to nix the negativity, start right now to practice reframing those old negative thoughts into new empowering beliefs that encourage and inspire you. This will get you on a healthier, happier, and more positive path. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Linda and her work, you can visit livinginspiredcoaching.com. Or as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Linda. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Little did aspiring actor Burt Ward know that learning martial arts, in addition to his mental and athletic ability, would change his life forever. A star athlete as a teenager, Burt had everything necessary to be a true boy wonder, and a boy wonder he became. Burt was cast as Robin opposite Adam West in the Batman TV series for ABC, a show that became an overnight sensation. Burt and Adam made personal appearances together and were featured on the cover of Life magazine. Welcome, Bert. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to meet you. So, Bert, like millions of others, I grew up watching Batman and Robin, and those are beloved characters to this day. Tell us a story about how you got involved with the show. Well, uh, I was a young actor going to UCLA, studying acting professionally. Uh, I, uh, on the weekends, was helping my father out, who was a prominent real estate broker in Beverly Hills, California. Uh, I helped him uh, sell a house to a famous producer who was nice enough to send me to an agent who sent me out for the part. There was a little bit of competition, about 1,100 young actors <laughs> that were trying out for the part. And uh, I got the role. Uh, I was told by the executive producer, we picked you, Bert, because in our minds, forgetting acting and television for a minute, but if there really was a Robin for real, we think that you personally would be it. So we want you to just be yourself and be enthusiastic. And that's what I did for 120 episodes. Bert, was this your first major role? It was my first role, period. Uh, there was, uh, it was uh, a wonderful experience. Uh, it was an amazing opportunity. But I felt really comfortable uh, being a very athletic person. And I was able to do all the stuff that they wanted Robin to do. And I just had a great time doing it. How did Robin evolve? The character goes back to the comic books that were in the 30s and 40s. They were developed, uh, and uh, uh, we basically uh, brought those comic book characters to life. And if you think about all the movies that have since come out with superheroes, they, those movies probably would never have happened if it hadn't been for the tremendous success of our television show, Batman, that brought superheroes into everybody's homes. So the show was a hit, and you and Adam were thrust into the spotlight almost overnight. What was that like for you? Was it crazy? Well, on one hand, it didn't have any change in one hand, because when you spend uh, 12 hours a day in a cold soundstage, and, <laughs> and there's nothing to do but sit around for 45 minutes to work for 20 seconds, uh, you know, it, it, it's not the glamour that you might think. However... When we, I would go out and make personal appearances and meet people, and I would see how the reaction was of kids just of all ages, adults, kids, teenagers, everybody went nuts over Batman, that uh, it was a, it, a whole different world than working on that soundstage, uh, you know, uh, putting on that costume and getting in front of that hot light with the camera. You know, I, I'm dating myself, so I grew up watching the show, and it was just so magical. There was just something about it. Today, you look at the way everything has to be so graphic and so spelled out. I like what you guys put out. I think it was magical. Well, it was also family entertainment. 
it was something for everybody, for kids. It was the hero worship. You know, I mean, what child didn't want to be Batman or Robin or at least ride in the Batmobile and climb walls and fight heinous villains all for the good of mankind? And for the adults, it was the nostalgia of the comic uh, book. And for teenagers and college kids, it was that uh, campy style, that that uh, double meaning insinuation and all the kinds of things that were, were kind of inside jokes and stuff that, you know, teenagers and college kids, they loved. There was something for everybody. You had so many great guests and supporting characters on the show. What were some of your favorite moments? Surviving. It was a very dangerous show to make. Um, and uh, I remember in the first week, uh, I think it was four out of the first five days, I ended up in the emergency hospital with uh, second-degree burns, a broken nose. I mean, I didn't think I was going to survive the first week. Who were some of the, the villains that you enjoyed working with the most? For me, as a young actor, I was like the kid in the candy store. Every one of these stars was somebody that I had seen either in movies or on television, and I was just blown away to have an opportunity to work with them. I remember when Vincent Price came on the set uh, to do the role of Egghead. Uh, I had remembered as a child seeing the Raven in some of his scary movies, and I had that moment when I first met him where I was actually a little frightened. They turned out to be a really nice man, and I had one of the best egg fights of my life, throwing eggs at, at Egghead on that show. So uh, it was a lot of fun, and there were so many great stars. Yeah, the list goes on. I was looking through it in preparation of, of speaking with you, and, and I really had forgotten how many amazing actors had been on that show. There were so many stars that wanted to be on the show, but because of the limitation of having one villain a week, uh, the producers created this special scene of Batman and Robin climbing up the side of a building and a window opening. And we had so many superstar guests from Sammy Davis Jr. to Colonel Clink to Lurch to Betty White to Don Ho to uh, just so many actors and actresses that wanted to be on our show that their own children were driving them crazy to get on Batman. Bert, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your life's work with us. You've brought joy to so many of us over the years. Well, thank you, citizen, to the Batmobile. <laughs> this is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. In 2011, today's guest, Colleen Alexander, was run over by a freight truck. After five weeks in a coma and 29 surgeries, Colleen survived. Rather than let the trauma and depression control her life, she became determined to find a way to turn her pain into something positive. A lifelong athlete, she decided she would run again and dedicate her medals to the everyday heroes around us. Since then, Colleen has run 50 races and completed 40 triathlons, including four half Ironman events. She shares her story to encourage others to take that first step forward. Colleen is the author of Gratitude in Motion, a true story of hope, determination, and the everyday heroes around us. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. 
Colleen, thank you so much for being here because you have such an inspiring story. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what your life was like before the accident. What were you doing and and what were you experiencing at that time? It was going really well. My husband and I had been married for about a year. Um, We had been reconnected for about three years. We just moved to Connecticut. I started a new job. We were actively trying to have our, our first little one. We were enjoying life. Okay, so everything was going well and your life was on track. So let's talk about that day. What happened that changed everything for you? Um, October 8th was just this gorgeous fall day and I had been called in for a work meeting on a Saturday and my husband was a postal worker so he worked on Saturdays to deliver mail and I always rode my bike into work as long as weather permitted I would ride it and it's about 10 miles each way so gave him a kiss goodbye um, had everything sitting out on the counter to make for dinner when I got home and headed to work I had a wonderful meeting with my supervisor left was halfway home and unfortunately a large freight truck uh, blew a stop and ran over me, the front and back sets of tires. Colleen, what were the extent of your injuries? Um, They were significant. My entire body from right below my xiphoid process down past my knees was run over. So if you would imagine uh, the double set of tires on a a freight truck. So thankfully, my heart was missed. But I was run over twice um, and dragged. I was basically gutted apart. The doctor described it much like if you were to put an apple on one of those old-fashioned apple peelers, Mm -hmm. crank it to take the skin off. That's what happened to the vast majority of my body. My pelvis was literally snapped into two pieces. I had an open book break. And then my leg was just crushed and my ankle was crushed and uh, back and front ends were were completely ripped apart. So I thankfully was backboarded and um, by three amazing strong women here in Madison that are um, paramedics and EMTs and brought to Yale. I flatlined within two minutes, approximately two minutes of, of getting in. My femoral artery had also been ripped apart. And um, the journey of just trying to bring Colleen back started. So I began going into cardiac arrest. Um, they said basically as quickly as they could get blood and, and body product into my system, I was just draining them out. My chief trauma surgeon described it like if you were to change a fish tank and you left the motor running, you forgot to unplug it. So you're draining the water out of the tank and the motor just starts struggling to try to siphon that water. And eventually the motor just burns out. And essentially my heart muscle was working so hard to try to bring whatever blood was left in my body. And there just wasn't enough blood left. So I began flatlining. And as I had um, approximately 20 people circling my body in the, the trauma bag giving CPR for over 20 minutes, there were surgeons trying to screw my pelvis back together. Uh, and apparently it was just a, a, a pretty chaotic scene. Colleen, do you have any memory of this at all? I have too many memories, unfortunately. Um, So I remember the entire trauma very, very vividly. Um, Everything up until I coded the first time in the the trauma bay. Um, And then my next memories are of being in a coma and being able to hear um, and smell and taste, but I couldn't move anything, um, including I couldn't breathe for myself. Yeah, the memories are um, are present. So Colleen, these professionals used their medical genius to fix whatever they could, and then it was time for you to heal. What was your recovery like? 
very intimidating and very scary. So nobody knew the extent of how well I would recover. We knew that it was going to take years. Um, over 50% of my body had lost its skin. So we were aware that at minimum, I would be growing skin back for about a year to a year and a half, and that I would have um, several surgeries. Um, we weren't sure how well I'd be able to ambulate um, if I'd ever walk again. So there was a lot of unknowns and my medical staff was really incredible with me that they were always very honest. Um, I was never given any um, fluffy, you know, you're going to be great and you're going to be a triathlete again and you're going to be a mom and, you know, you're going to recover fully. Um, they were always just very, very raw with me with, you know, first of all, you survived and this is incredible and we're going to be right here with you for every step moving forward. And as long as you're willing to fight and work hard, we're right here with you to fight and work hard. So the race, the series of races, I think, began for me once I woke up out of that coma. Colleen, were there times when you said, I just can't do this anymore. I'm too tired. I can't fight on. And and if there were, what kept you going? Yeah, there absolutely was. Um, the pain in itself was very difficult to just know how to exist. And having, I had wound changes daily, sometimes three, four hours at a, at a pop, um, which were very, very humiliating. And um, the thing that I started to learn was that I had had all of these people that donated blood mm-hmm. um, and that my heart had only been restarted because of these multiple units of, of blood that were given to me. And when people donate blood, they do it selflessly. They typically, they're not getting anything back except for maybe a cookie and some apple juice. But I learned the magnitude of heroes behind me, and I learned that I had had this, these hands-on CPR compressions. And the very act of the human family became so real and so powerful for me that I knew I wasn't alone. So that has really been um, the driving force for me, is that I'm part of something far bigger than mm-hmm. just this, this incident that happened in my life. Well, Colleen, we all go through different types of trauma or challenges. What is your message to someone who feels like he or she can't go on? Is it that we're part of something bigger? That we're a part of something bigger and also that it is completely okay to not be okay sometimes. I believe that in our society, we are taught that if you're going through a tough time, suck it up and get through it. Um, You know, if you have chronic pain, if you have depression, if you've had a death in your life, if you've had a disease or whatever it is, we rarely are given the permission to mourn and be messy. And more than anything, I think for people to understand that the most beautiful, beautiful pieces of art come out of really, really messy art studios. Mm-hmm. And we have to give ourselves permission to be messy and, and to know that at our weak moments, we have no less uh, self-worth. Our worth is still there. It's still great. It's still strong. Um, but we need assistance at that time. And that doesn't, you know, make us any weaker. Colleen, since it was the lower part of your body that sustained the most damage, why did you choose to run again? Did that make some kind of a statement for you? Absolutely. Um, so running has never been easy for me. Uh, I had brain surgery prior. I had lupus. Uh, running has always been very, very painful. Um, 
because it's joint related. And so I did run, but predominantly so I could do triathlon, but I didn't love it. And once I was bedridden, thinking I might never run again, the only thing I wanted to do was run. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would never run as good as I ran before, but I used to dream of running. I would just imagine my body just moving forward. And running became this catalyst for me that I could say thank you to so many people that had helped me live and thrive. And when we do races, uh, typically we get a medal at the end, a finisher's medal. And when trying to to thank a hero, there's not many things that we can really, uh, well, that I could think of that I could give to a hero to really thank them. I mean, certainly my verbal words, giving them a hug, giving them a card, um, but to be able to go out and literally take these journeys, these physical journeys of strength, and then get this medal and be able to hand it to a hero um, became this impetus to run. And then I thought, started thinking, oh my goodness, well, I have all of these doctors and surgeons and I have all my physical therapists and oh my goodness, look at all these races I have to do. It became a, a very different experience. And then I had 30 surgeries. So in order to go under anesthesia each and every time, I wanted to be as strong cardiovascularly as I possibly could be. And so I no longer raced to place, but I would race to be as strong as possible to go in for the next surgery. How has all of this changed you? I just appreciate the days a little bit differently now. It's forced me to really relive a lot of my um, infancy because I was incontinent for a long time. Um, I was dependent on everyone for for everything, food, drink, water, air. Um, you know, I, I relearned to walk. I had to relearn basic math. I relearned so much. And through that experience, I, I thought, you know, that little Colleen that was there so many years ago that was learning these things is still very much a part of me today. And learning how to nurture that younger self um, in my present state has been really beautiful. The book is Gratitude in Motion, a true story of hope, determination, and the everyday heroes around us. If you would like to get more information about Colleen and her work, you can visit ColleenKellyAlexander.com. Colleen, in about 30 seconds or less, what's a takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? There's a lot of uh, turmoil that's happening in our world, all around us in our communities, and remember that love is always louder. We are part of a beautiful human family, and just look at each other, look at yourself, remembering that our hearts all, all bleed the same blood, and we, we need each other to survive, and how beautiful our, our human family really is. Colleen, thank you so much for being here with us today. Your story is so inspiring, and it reminds us that anything in life is possible, and also that wonderful things can come out of the darkness. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. So the world is opening back up and we can actually see people in real life. Are you ready? And what does that mean for your social media? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, and I'm making a radical suggestion to you about social media. Give yourself a break. You don't need to post every day on social media. Have a plan. Posting good content three times a week or every other day is more than enough. Shoot some videos and post those. It doesn't have to be every day. 
What you do need to do is be authentic and strategic in your marketing plan for social media. Know why you're posting. Know what you want your post to share about you and your business. But most importantly, run your business in real life. Spend time with your family. See people you haven't been able to see in a long time. Be kind, be thoughtful, be generous, be understanding. Life can be a lot shorter than you think it's going to be. We've learned that since we've all lived through a pandemic. Social media is a way to stay in touch with your customers, but for most of you, it's not your reason for being in business. Give yourself a break and enjoy your life and your work. If you do need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Simple social media. Did you know that a person will walk an estimated 150,000 miles in his or her lifetime? That's roughly the equivalent of walking around the world six times. The feet take a lot of daily abuse from walking, running, jumping, and climbing. So naturally, they are subject to many different problems. Hi, I'm Dr. Anand Joshi, a podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Here are a few tips to help you keep your feet in shape. Wear shoes that fit properly. This can help prevent worsening of deformities such as bunions and hammer toes, as well as prevent painful ingrown toenails from occurring. Keep your feet clean and dry. The most common cause of athlete's foot is having excessive moisture between the toes. Keeping your feet dry reduces the fungal load on your skin and helps prevent athlete's foot. Cut your toenails properly. Improperly trimming toenails can lead to painful ingrown toenails as well as skin infections. Protect your feet in public areas like showers and swimming pools. Plantar warts are commonly caused by walking barefoot in locker room showers as well as around swimming pools. Stretch the leg muscles daily. This will prevent stiffness from occurring in the joints of the foot and ankle. This can also increase blood flow to the soft tissues of the foot and ankle. Keeping your feet healthy is important if you're going to be able to go the distance. If you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today to talk about healthcare decisions and your wishes is Lori Gardner, a registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. Lori assists people with all aspects of their healthcare. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Joan. So, Lori, why is it so important to let people know about your medical wishes? 
Well, Joan, without making your end-of-life wishes known to a loved one, a partner, a friend, you could be in a situation where critical life support decisions need to be made, and there isn't anyone that knows how to make them. As a result, it puts extreme pressure on your next of kin or family to try and make these difficult decisions. But by doing this advanced care planning, you kind of maintain control of your wishes, or at least identify them, gain some peace of mind, and ensure that your wishes are honored. I actually have seen patients on ventilators with no quality of life and no chance of recovery for longer than seemed necessary because their wishes were not known. There's so many tools that people can use really to make their wishes known, but it's sometimes hard to have that conversation, you know, with a loved one. And there's this uh, excellent uh, website called uh, theconversationproject.org. They actually help family members set up the environment, set up the words to use on how to have that difficult conversation. Some people find it very difficult. There's also a website I highly recommend and we utilize a lot called Aging with Dignity. And on that website, agingwithdignity.org, they have a booklet called Five Wishes. It's beautiful. You can actually go through that and, and follow the prompts and fill out a booklet that defines your wishes give it to your loved one. It's pretty um, straightforward. But I always say to people, it's not a subject we all like to address, right? I want to talk about my death and end of life wishes. But I always say you do it now, and you have a little more freedom. You don't have to worry about it. Lori, what documents should every person have? And can you briefly explain each? Absolutely, Joan. First one I would talk about is the advanced directive, also known as the living will. This is where you can be very specific about what your end of life wishes are. And you can use that five wishes uh, product I just mentioned to do that. Then there's the healthcare power of attorney, healthcare proxy. This is a person you choose to discuss your end of life wishes with and your chosen quality of life in circumstances that are at end of life. This person makes the medical decisions for you when you can't. Take some time and counsel choosing this person. It's not always a family member. It should be someone you think has the strength and integrity to follow through with your wishes. There's also the durable power of attorney. This is the person that is designated to act on your behalf regarding financial matters if you become incapacitated. There is a difference between a general POA power of attorney and a durable power of attorney. And that is the general one is effective until somebody is incapacitated while the durable power of attorney continues to death. Very important distinction. Uh, PULSE stands for the um, Physicians order for life-sustaining treatment, also a very important uh, document as you get older. This is frequently placed on somebody's refrigerator. Um, it's done in, in coordination and collaboration with your physician, and they write up what your end-of-life um, wishes are and orders, and they put it in place. The physician signs it. It's usually kept on your refrigerator because it allows an EMT in, in the event of an emergency that they come into the house and nobody's there. If they don't see that pulse form, they have to do all resuscitative measures. If that pulse form is there and it says no heroics or do not resuscitate, then they will comply with that. That leads right into DNR, DNI orders. DNRs do not resuscitate, resuscitate, excuse me, which means no CPR, cardiac drugs, or placement of a breathing tube, otherwise called intubation. The DNI is do not intubate. CPR and cardiac drugs can be used. They just can't intubate. And then the last one I'll mention is organ donor designation. This is something that some people like to do ahead of time and uh, either decide yes or no that they would donate the organs. Organ. Lori, you've been doing this work for some time. How can people make the right decision when their loved ones didn't share their wishes? Yeah, we have uh, experienced this situation oftentimes across the years, Joan. And I would advise that people go back to the families or whoever it is they trust and have this conversation about how they envision their quality of life, the types of care they want, and end of life. As hard as that is, it's important to do. And if you have to be one uh, 
raising the question with your family, then you just do it. It's just being proactive. And you do that as you also decide on who your health care proxy is. You know, if you need more assistance, there are people out there like the advanced care planning specialists. You could talk to a therapist about how you go about this, your feelings, even identifying. Sometimes hard to decide what your wishes are. You don't really understand even the medical system. So you get somebody. There's also people that are in the palliative care world. There's a practitioner that could help you make these decisions. So I highly recommend if you, you can be proactive, do it yourself. If not, get the help you need. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Lori and her work or this topic, you can visit healthlinkadvocates.com. Or as always, to hear more from Lori, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lori. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.